Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The world's markets had their worst week this year as central bankers sharply ratcheted up interest rates to fight inflation, in the process stoking fears that a recession is inevitable. That combined with a slight rise in gas prices that have been dropping for the past several months, combined with more bad economic news from China in the wake of Beijing's continued COVID crackdowns are having their impact as well. Airbus held its annual Capital Markets Day for analysts, and two of our team were there in person for some truly illuminating statements from Airbus Chief Executive Guillaume Fauré about inflation, supply chains, narrow body production rates, the market share outlook against the European giant's rival Boeing, sustainable aviation, and perhaps most importantly, how to thoughtfully run one of the world's most successful companies. Xiamen Airlines reversed course, canceling its order for Boeing 737 jetliners and instead buying uh, Airbus's A320 uh, family. Uh, That's particularly important because the Chinese air carrier has historically been an all Boeing fleet and had uh, 27 uh, 737 maxes on order. Adding to Boeing's war, Adding to Boeing's woes, its shares got pounded after paying a $200 million fine to settle uh, Securities and Exchange Commission uh, charges that the company and its former chief executive, Dennis Mullenberg, negligently violated federal securities laws by making publicly misleading statements regarding the crash of two 737 MAX uh, jets that killed 346 people. Uh, Mullenberg uh, was fined $1 million. Uh, And news from the Air Force Association's annual Airspace Cyber Conference and trade show outside Washington, D.C. on the service's next generation air dominance program, the new collaborative combat aircraft, the B-21 bomber, uh, that will be unveiled later this year, uh, that will be unveiled in December, in fact, and L3 Harris's new partnership with Embraer to globally market the KC-390 as a tanker transport to replace the C-130 on the global market. That's something we've been discussing for a long time on this program. Boeing used to be partnered with the company on that uh, endeavor, uh, and now that's L3's uh, advantage. Uh, And on Friday, Raytheon won a major air-breathing hypersonic missile contract worth $1 billion, beating Lockheed uh, and Boeing to that punch. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Avalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Guys, welcome back to the program. It's always great having you on uh, all on together. That wouldn't be a weekend without it, Bargo. Yeah, it's great to be back, Vargo. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be on as always, Vargo. Thanks. Uh, thank you very, very much for all. And I would point out to our audience that uh, Ron is a little bit tight on time uh, because he is on uh, the move. So we fully appreciate that and uh, you know, look forward to enjoying you as long as you can spend with us. Uh, before we uh, get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, ultra intelligence, and communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of AFA's Airspace Cyber Conference was sponsored by Leonardo DRS. And check out our interview with Lockheed Martin's Aeronautics Chief Greg Ulmer uh, and our special AFA coverage uh, that will uh, be on Tuesday and over uh, subsequent uh, weeks. 
And check out our two weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look uh, at all things space. Everybody, welcome back again, Ron. Um, another bad week. In fact, uh, the, the worst uh, week uh, in a year with equities uh, down, uh, the Fed and central bankers in Europe. Um, uh, have increased borrowing rates unnecessarily so and unnecessarily sharply, according to some. Uh, Putin's grand uh, standing has driven another jump in energy uh, prices, which are all coming together to spark renewed recession fears. Uh, the problem with markets is, you know, they can whistle past a whole bunch of bad news uh, graveyards, right? But once they get in their minds, things are going bad. Uh, it becomes very, very hard to disabuse them of that notion. And it appears that we are entering that territory. Walk us through uh, the week, the major storylines, and how the group uh, performed. Uh, because you know th there was sort of broader sentiment as well as some specific uh, news items that impacted how companies performed, right? I mean, Boeing got dinged, for example, by the SEC fine. Yeah, so it was a busy week in global markets. And just to maybe start with the 300,000-foot view and then drill down, um, our quantitative strategy group uh, put out a note this week and mentioned that you know, this is the worst um, year so far in government bond markets since 1949. Um, when you think about a 30-year mortgage, 30-year mortgages in one year have gone from, uh, on average, uh, across the nation, because they're different in regional markets, from 3.1% to 6.6%. That's a pretty quick move. Um, this week, the 10-year yield uh, got up to 3.7%. Uh, and just to put that in perspective, it was about a percent and a half about a year ago. So that's, you know, you, you know, we're coming off, to put it in perspective, the lowest interest rates in like 5,000 years. However, rates have gone up by twofold. So, you know, you, you, you feel that if you're, you got used to uh, the low. Um, on the heels of that, there's a lot of things, crosswinds in the market. Uh, I think one of the the, the things this week that was just you know almost startling was the move of the dollar. Um, if you look at the U.S. dollar versus the renminbi, uh, it's at a five-year high uh, at seven point one. Uh, the dollar euro is below parity uh, at about ninety-seven cents uh, for a euro, and then the dollar pound uh, is at uh, one point oh eight. Uh, if you round up one point oh nine, um, which is as low as it's been. I, it's, in recent memory. So the dollar right now is extraordinarily strong. When you look at uh, our group uh, and how it traded, as you mentioned, uh, because of a lot of factors, uh, Boeing was down about nine and a half percent. The best performer in our group this year, or this week, excuse me, was Lockheed Martin. It was down less than a percent. Broadly speaking, the defense stocks massively outperformed the commercial aerospace stocks. Uh, and then some of the other names uh, that I cover are in my universe that are more sensitive economically, um, maybe because they have extended balance sheets or they have businesses that could be perceived as more economically sensitive, got hit pretty hard. Uh, notably, Bombardier was down uh, almost 20% this week. Uh, and then you know some other names with similar similar kind of moves that were seen as more economically sensitive. The VIX index, you know, this measure of, of sort of fear and volatility in the market that we've been tracking, uh, shot up above 30, closed the week at about 30. Uh, and, and it's interesting. You've seen oil pull back, and this is I, you know oil prices are one of those funny things where you want to see you want to see oil prices go down for the right reason, not for the wrong reason. And now what we're starting to see, I think, from the market perspective, is, is oil prices decline for the wrong reason. Uh, WTI closed the week uh, at about 79. Uh, Brent crude uh, per barrel closed the week at about $86. Uh, 
Uh, and that's for both of those, that's almost back to where they were a year ago. Uh, and, and that's largely on you know, fears of, of a global slowdown. So there's a ton of cross currents in the market right now. And, uh, and it was a, it was a pretty, pretty brutal market. Um, one of the things that, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to suggest is, you know, to, to the listeners, there's a, there's a great book called the great inflation and its aftermath by Samuelson. And it really goes back to the history of uh, the tension between Volcker and Reagan uh, and, and what needed to happen to, for inflation. And it, it seems like on some scale, you're seeing that play out today with, uh, the, the criticisms of, of, of the, what the fed's doing and so on and so forth. Um, you know, inflation isn't, isn't fun. And, and it seems like the fed is really sticking to their guns on this one. Uh, and we should point out, right. I mean, uh, 10 year at 3.7%. And there are some people who think that it's going to get to five, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it, it was kind of frustrating. I don't know if you've listened to the Fed meeting. Just to be clear, I, I don't cover the Fed for the bank or anything like that. This is just Ron's observation. Um, you know, you know the, the Fed said what they said. And then in, with the uh, reporters asking questions, they all seemed to ask the same question 30 different ways and they got the same answer. Right. So I don't know. Um, it's the, the Fed seems pretty you know, determined to. Uh, get inflation under control. And then the fear is always, right, that they, they overshoot. And I think if you look at history, uh, odds are they probably will overshoot. Um, and it's that tricky game where right. if you start late, it's hard to catch up. Because, because, and I think this is the most important point, and I think this is lost in a lot of people, inflation's highly nonlinear, right? You can't turn the knob a quarter of an inch or whatever, go from one to two and expect a linear response out of inflation. It doesn't work that way because it's all around right. expectations and supply chains. And so it's so nonlinear that um, it's a tricky thing to try to control. And, and, and right, folks who are asking for action early uh, in order to be able to temper it and not get to a point as we are now, which is uh, expectations were like, hey, you know, this won't be that bad. And then the knob goes up again and they go, holy Toledo, uh, you know, what what uh, what was that? And I know that a lot of people out there say holy Toledo. And that's a phrase very, uh, very uh, <laughs> well, well known to me. I'm, I'm kidding. Um, Sash, uh, pound, uh, euro uh, are at new lows. Uh, the trust uh, government is back to work after Her Majesty's extraordinary funeral last week uh, with a Thatcherite package of tax cuts that uh, many economists maintain won't work uh, the way, uh, you know, won't work today the way that they may have worked uh, for decades ago. Uh, Ron's uh, book by Samuelson, I think, is uh, is a classic from uh, from that standpoint. Walk us through the week how European and especially, you know, sort of the broader market uh, in, in Europe and how uh, UK and European defense and aerospace shares performed uh, as a consequence. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a dreadful end to the week in European, uh, European stock prices. I mean, stocks in our sector were generally somewhere between three and 6% off. Um, and, you know, they read almost all over the screen. Um Largely, that was taking the uh, taking a lead from the US. And I think it's going to be very interesting, given that the US um, continued to fall after most European exchanges um, were, were closed last week. Uh, I suspect Europe's going to have a pretty sticky uh, start, start to the week ahead. Um, clearly, the issue of dollar straight or, or sorry, the issue of impending recession and impending recession almost everywhere and inflation and the two are very, very closely linked is what's driving stocks at the moment. And a lot of what would Otherwise, we would think of as being macro issues, but are clearly at the moment second order issues like the threat from Ukraine, like 
uh, the nature of the civil aerospace cycle were just ignored by investors as they took a sort of top-down view of uh, get out of equities and probably stay out of equities. Or I have to say, there's not a lot of, um, there's not as much volume around in some of these trades as there would have been five years ago, uh, let alone uh, 10 years ago. Currency has been astonishing. I mean, I think you're quite right. It's the dollar is unbelievably strong. Um, and hence, uh, you know, the euro is approaching parity. But, the, but sterling is at its weakest since 1984. Um, and that really was considered to be a sterling crisis then. And, you know, we're, we're as close to parity to both currencies as I've ever known or never, ever, ever want to know, frankly. Um, uh, you know, in Toulouse, I was getting um, uh, euros out uh, at below parity. That's a really painful experience. Uh, it does not make visiting Toulouse uh, a, a, at all pleasant. So, yeah, it's been a very, very bad week. One point to note, though, uh, in terms of stock market performance, uh, UK pension funds, and hence the pension deficits that some of the largest UK industrial companies, including Rolls-Royce, BA Systems in particular, have traditionally had, UK pension fund funds are actually flat on the year because what they've lost in share prices, they've made up in terms of the weakness of sterling against the dollar. So that UK corporates with big pension deficits, and to some extent European corporates as well, um, and Airbus has got a big pension deficit, Thales has traditionally had a, a large one, Leonardo as well, um, the pension deficits of companies in our universe in Europe are actually better than they've been in a decade. Uh, and that's a remarkable turnaround because pension deficits were seen as being the hidden debt that our companies had to cope with. And they are vanishing at the moment like a snowball in the Sahara. Um, and just on sterling, the other thing that made things worse this week uh, was clearly the UK mini budget, um, which was a huge package of tax cuts in particular, um, which was taken very, very badly by the markets. And um, that caused uh, sterling to, uh, to fall even more uh, on, uh, on Thursday and Friday than I think it otherwise would have done. Richard, uh, things were not necessarily looking, you know, as bad for uh, the U.S. economy as perceptions are uh, now, right? Fed, uh, then the Fed raised rates. Vladimir Putin called up troops, is threatening nuclear wars. So that's had a little bit of an impact uh, as well on sentiments and, and, and markets. Uh, you have unrest in Iran. Uh, Ron wrote a great note about um, losing thrust across all engine makers versus uh, where we were in 2019. A lot of optimism that air travel was going to be strong going forward and we wouldn't you know, have enough airplanes even to uh, meet uh, the, the demand. Uh, we're maybe a little bit less optimistic now. What are some of the major storylines across the week that got your uh, attention? Yeah, um, on the civil side of the industry, a bunch of stuff, you know, uh, boy, there are a bunch of dark clouds. Absolutely. We're going to test the proposition that the comeback in air travel is, uh, you know, going to survive or going to keep going despite uh, the recession. Uh, that's going to be a fascinating one to watch. Uh, Ron's note was extremely timely. Um, you know, one issue that I think we've been looking at everyone's been looking at is that in a time of ESG, in a time of everyone talking about new technology development needed to cope with increased demands for fuel burn reduction and emissions reduction. You know, you've got this engine ecosystem that's not in great shape. My uh, friend and colleague, Kevin Michaels, has also written about this in Aviation Week back a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, I think Ron and Kevin are totally onto something that, you know, you've got three companies, Rolls-Royce is in pretty, I mean, they, they seem to survive which is kind of miraculous given where they were in the depths of the pandemic. 
but it's not like they have a whole lot of resources. They've sort of all but admitted that Ultrafan is on the shelf. What can they do in terms of important new product development, especially when no one really knows what that roadmap is moving forward for aero engines. GE, of course, said to debut as Remainco. Uh, we don't know how the market will treat them because it's, well, Remainco, and they might be seen as something tied to the commercial air recovery that might not be happening exactly as planned. Um, Pratt & Whitney, of course, part of one of the strongest companies in the world right now, Raytheon, but well, they get the resources needed because they're not really exactly front and center in the Raytheon org chart. So oh, there are all these big questions about the ability of the ecosystem to innovate at a time of increased demand and uncertain markets moving forward. Uh, as Ron mentioned, of course, Bombardier was hit more than just about everybody. And there's a solid reason for that. Of course, we've been saying for some time, they're going to be the world's first pure play publicly traded business jet prime, which means they're heavily dependent upon, well, the top end of the business jet market that may or may not go through the pandemic or start through the recession, the likely recession completely uh, intact. And they're going to face headwinds. They could, of course, also face higher costs for uh, servicing their debt, which is not insubstantial. So I think there were a bunch of fascinating issues and cross currents this week. Um, my personal bet is that you know air travel keeps growing, um, just because you know we have yet to see the full comeback harnessed because of availability issues, because of all these bottlenecks and constraints. I still think we're going to enjoy a pretty solid year ahead. But if we have a you know the classic definition of a recession two quarters, that could challenge that assumption, of course. Uh, Sash, you've, you've got your hand up. Yeah, I, I just want to follow on because the, um, the point that Richard was making about um, GE Aviation, GE Aerospace becoming Romainco, it seems to me that it's going to be incredibly important that General Electric leaves the aerospace business, the aero engine business, very, very well capitalized because at some stage in the next five to eight years, um, Engine companies are going to have to spend a ton of money on the engines that are will enter service in the in uh, sometime in, in the mid 2030s. If GE is not well capitalized, it will lose. And you know the the sort of the natural uh, leading market position that it had over the last three decades as a result of the success first of all of the CFM 56 and then the leap will go because it won't be able to spend enough on the next generation of engines, which will not be based very much on leap. Um, and I think this is an incredibly important decision for the GE boards to make. And this is exactly the wrong time to be thinking about short-term shareholder value. Yeah, well, uh, that's a very interesting uh, segue and lead in uh, to uh, Guillaume Fauré's uh, comments. Uh, that was a great note, Sash, uh, that you uh, had um, where he spent 40 minutes and he didn't talk about profit uh, and sales, but actually corporate culture, sustainability, you know, all of the things actually you would like a CEO to talk about instead of hitting you with a whole series of platitudes um, about where they stand indeed at a kind of an inflection point when uh, his company is doing very well and his competitor is actually not doing well. And he had some candid statements about that um, uh, as well. Um, let me, let's, let's go to Ron because Ron's on a short string and I want to get Ron's comments both on what his takeaways on the capital markets day uh, were, and then also get Xiamen's uh, decision because um, again, as, as both of you wrote, right, it, this is not about 40, this is not about ordering 40 A320 uh, family airplanes. 
This is an all Boeing carrier making a shift and canceling those uh, 27, 737 MAX jets uh, that, uh, that it had. And, and, you know, and then compounding uh, Boeing's tough week was uh, the SEC fining, uh, not just of the company, but also its former chief executive. Ron, why don't you uh, take a bite at that before you have to punch out? B- bite at all of that before you punch out, and then we can continue the conversation. Yeah, I mean, a couple comments on the Capital Markets Day, and I'll leave the meat of it to Sash because it's his, his company and uh, he covers it. That's what I mean. And, and I don't cover it for Bank of America. My, my colleague, Ben Healan, does. Um, but that, that being said, you know, from a, from a Boeing point of view, my observations were a couple of things. One, uh, it, it, Guillaume came out uh, and talked, it was willing to talk about the A220 500 more than at least I've heard him in the past, that, you know, that they're getting. Um, you know, some demand for it from airlines. And he, he seemed to be positioning it as, you know what? Yeah, this thing will probably be, you know, the base of our product line. It'll probably replace the A319. And who knows, maybe one day even the A320, positioning the, the A321 as the, the center of their product line. You know, you just do the quick maths and you find out um, uh, uh, that when you look at, the A321, and we've been saying this for a while, but I guess I just never really did the numbers. Um, it's 60% of Airbus's backlog. So if you take 60% of the backlog, that's almost, that's 90% of Boeing's entire backlog for all 737s across all types, right? So it, you know, it's not just that the A321's done well. I mean, it's crushing it. Um, and, you know, they position A321 as kind of the, the core of uh, their narrow body product line. So that, that's one that if you get an A220-500 out there, that could be problematic for Boeing. So that's one thing, uh, potentially, depending on how it goes. Two, uh, and, I, and I thought this was you know, just kind of like, uh-oh, um, when Airbus said, hey, you know what? We want to do in the wide body market what we did in the narrow body market in terms of how successful we've been with the product and that the launch of the A350 freighter was sort of the, the start of that new strategy, if you will. Um, so, I mean, if I look at what's happened in the narrow body market and I'm their primary competitor, and then they say they want to do that in the wide body market, I would take that very, 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 very seriously. Um, another thing that kind of jumps out at me is just sort of an observer of the industry. It's just the humbleness. I mean, they, they're doing quite well, uh, and they're, they're pretty darn humble about it. Right. And, and I think ultimately that probably does serve them well, speaks to culture and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, those, th- those were big things. And then maybe the fourth one that I think was important, um, again, uh, from a broader perspective is they seem to be repositioning the debate on defense, meaning a, a lot of the conversation on defense was from a, Hey, you know what, w- we all know about ESG and sustainability of aircraft and, and, that, you know, lowering carbon and that's important, but you know what, so is national security because that kind of security you know, allows you to have a free society and so on and so forth. So it, it seemed like they're, they're, they're talking about that and, and trying to position it, maybe not just for the investor community, but for maybe some of the ears in the European Union thinking about things about the social taxonomy and so on and so forth. Um, and and I, I found that interesting, right? Because if indeed you do get to the point where you have a broader investor base for defense globally. That's good for everybody. That's good for right. uh, both sides of the Atlantic. And, 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 and back to a point that I just find ironic um, and, you know, just kind of just doesn't make any sense. You know, Germany buying F-35s or nuclear deterrence ultimately to deliver nuclear weapons under NATO agreements. 
but most investors in Germany can't invest in Lockheed Martin, which that makes no sense to me, right? And I think right. it, it was interesting how they were trying to finesse and position, at least from my point of view, and what it means to invest in defense. And then also, maybe one last point as a, as a, as a, as a uh, tie into that, they did admit, you know what, you know, European defense spending over the next several years could go up pretty meaningfully. Uh, I think over four years, uh, they're looking at uh, about a 40% increase in defense spending. Um, so that gives you about a you know, compound annual growth rate in Europe of almost 10% a year. Um, but the European industrial base can't handle it. Uh, that the European industrial base isn't, you know, just isn't, uh, capitalized enough to, to deal with it. And, and obviously that's positive for um, U.S. defense companies. And and uh, your uh, take on the Xiamen uh, decision and tectonically, what does that mean at a time when, you know, the decoupling is accelerating, right? I mean, last week uh, it was, uh, you know, both Greg Hayes and Ted Colbert who were sanctioned by the CCP. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 clearly not a good thing if um, you know you're trying to sell seven three sevens and one of your customers who is you know part of a state-run airline um, who you know, and the state buys the airplanes uh, ultimately switches to the other provider. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, I think it's it's really meaningful. I find it interesting that that happened uh, at the same time. You're starting to see in the press that you know the C uh, the, the 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 CAAC is is meeting with Boeing to talk about uh, new training and this and that. And it seems like there's some hinting that maybe the 737 is, is, is going down the path a bit that maybe they'll, they'll green light it finally in China. But you know, while that's going on, the, the, the bigger offset is you know, some of the major customers in China are um, you know, uh, uh, moving away from the product. Um, so, and, and I'm certain Richard has uh, some, some views on this, so I don't want to take you know, wind out of his sails, but, um, you know, ultimately it's not a good thing. Right. And, and I would expect to see more of it, frankly. Right. Uh, and very, uh, very quickly, briefly on the KC 390 deal, as well as the Raytheon missile deal, uh, because, um, that's quite an impact, uh, potentially, uh, well, I mean, it, it has a broader impact, but as well on Lockheed Martin, right? Because Lockheed has been trying to uh, increase production of uh, LRASMs, increase pro- pro- production of JASM ER. Does this affect that dynamic either? Real, real quick on both of those. Yeah, I mean, no matter who you are, a billion dollar contract, a billion dollar contract, that's a big one. Um, and, uh, you know, for Raytheon, uh, who I don't think was broadly seen as a major player in hypersonics, well, this really puts them on the map. It's a big flag and it's on the map now. Uh, so, you know, that's, it's a real, it's a real victory for them and, you know, for, uh, for Lockheed and Boeing, it's, it's, it's clearly a loss. I'm certain a headwind that they didn't expect to see. Um, and then, uh, when you think about the, the, the KC 390 and L3 Harris, um, you know, as we've discussed and, you know, I know Vago, you're a big fan of it. You know, the KC 390 is quite an airplane. Uh, right. it, it's it's a different airplane than the bigger tankers uh, and, and the bigger uh, transport aircraft, but it's a very capable airplane. And it's and and with the proper partner that can help market the airplane and maybe get some market access. And at a time where there are countries in the world that maybe want to be less dependent on a hundred percent U.S. kit, um, you can imagine that there might be some markets for that airplane that maybe Embraer couldn't get at alone, that with L3 Harris they could get at. So I think for L3 Harris, I mean, obviously it's a, it, it's a win, and for Embraer, uh, it's a win. 
And it was uh, great uh, seeing Chris Kubasic and Jackson Schneider uh, and uh, others from the Emirer team last week. So that was, uh, that was a real treat. Ron, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, as, as always, Bago, it's, it's great to be here. Thanks. Sash, uh, let's uh, go to you. And I'm sorry we had to go a little bit out of order, but we were going to lose Ron and I wanted to get his bite on it in part because he had a note on, um, uh, on, on all of this. Uh, Sash, take it away. You're the one who covers Airbus. Uh, and by the way, uh, kudos on how you write notes because there are a lot of action verbs and things like that in there. They're really well written for anybody who hasn't had, uh, who hasn't enjoyed uh, reading everybody's notes. We have a very talented team here. Uh, I think, uh, uh, and I speak also for uh, on Richard's behalf, uh, that are also beautifully written notes as well uh, as well as Ron's. But I particularly enjoyed your uh, note on uh, the Airbus Capital Markets Day. What, you know, what what were some of the things that most jumped out to you? Oh, look, uh, <laughs> thanks for the comment on my writing. I haven't had my writing marked for quite some time. Um, yeah, so look, I mean, picking up from, from and, you know, I'm no disagreement with any of uh, Ron's comments, although to add to the point on the A321, not only is it 60% of the backlog, but their ambition is, is for it to be 70, 70% of output going forward, which suggests that they think that the vast majority of future orders are going to be A321s, whether it's 321 vanilla, uh, LRs or XLRs. Um, and that is, you know, you said that's, a, that's a, a crushing position to have. Um, so, you know, uh, additional things that really surprised uh, me. First of all, you remember that last week um, we had a lot of discussion about whether Airbus can get to rate 75, 75 A320 family aircraft a month in 2025. And their target is Q1 2025. And uh, uh, Raytheon Technologies CEO, Greg Hayes, um, was reported very widely on the wires as saying that Airbus won't make it. And Airbus's response was really interesting. Guillaume Forey was clearly, is clearly very upset. I could use a much more profane word um, about Greg Hayes's comments. And he um, analyzed those in, in you know, a degree of detail. I, I, I think um, what you're, the word you're grasping for was pissed off. Yes, I think that's, that's a very okay. accurate description. He really was. Um, and it, um, uh, it was very interesting. Airbus management held the line on rate. Their target is to get to rate 75. And remember that's rate 75 is defined as being aircraft entering the final assembly line. So it doesn't translate to deliveries until about six to nine months later, but that's fine uh, in 2025. And that's it. Um, and they actually, you know, paused that a bit by saying, all these comments about how we are rolling back, and that was a quote used in the, the very good Reuters story last week uh, on rate things. We've already rolled back Airbus because we've cut our delivery target for 2022 from 720 aircraft to 700 aircraft. Um, so that was a, uh, you know, that, that, that was a very, very spirited discussion about that, but they're not moving on that. We'll see. I suspect they make it uh, rate 75, um, uh, you know, one or two quarters later. I'm not terribly worried about that. Put all this into perspective, though, they are talking about delivering a thousand aircraft a year, delivering now, not producing, delivering a thousand aircraft a year as they enter the second half of the decade. Um, and it comes back to our thesis. It's all but impossible for Boeing to catch up with that sort of um, uh, with uh, with that sort of volume there. Um, other issues uh, that I you know, really, um, uh, you know, came back to us. I think the thing that is worrying Airbus most um, long-term 
actually isn't isn't Boeing. They think, um, and you get this from you know breakouts and uh, you know one on one chats with management. They think Boeing has, is pretty much crippled technologically and because of its managerial um, decisions in the past. But their biggest single worry is sustainability. There isn't going to be enough sustainable aviation fuel available this decade and probably next decade. Even if there is, um, uh, they can't. You know, the the industry won't shift to it. Uh, fast enough, and even at 50% uh, use of SAF versus normal uh, aviation fuel, that's not going to bring emissions down fast enough. And this is actually, I mean, they t- at one stage, you know, this is an existential thing. They actually talked about this being something that could, uh, the term used roll back growth, which is another, another way of saying this industry will shrink because of legislative action unless we can do better on emissions. Um, look, this is an issue for a decade or more away, but that was a that was a really uh, you know it was a very honest but quite chilling assessment of um, uh, the issues for uh, sustainability, um, supply chain and inflation. We, there was a very good presentation by the CFO about inflation and escalation clauses. Um, it was probably a little bit simplistic, and um, uh, there was a great deal of you know we've got it covered, nothing to see here. Um, uh, Pat, you know, hope that's the case. Um, but in terms of supply chain, uh, they were actually slightly more explicit and they said, we've got fewer suppliers red listed now than we had uh, a couple of quarters ago. The number of shortages of parts coming into the final assembly lines is, uh, it, you know, has reduced compared to uh, some time ago. Final issue, we talked a lot on this podcast about a, you know, how this is a broadly a balanced civil aerospace duopoly you know with a with some sort of slightly irritating but generally not very serious uh, new entrants coming and going at, at, at the various corners um Guillaume Forey has pretty much abandoned the idea that duopoly means 50 50 uh and he um uh, you know he's going to he's going to produce what he can produce his company is going to produce what it can produce if if Boeing um is stuck at down at sub 40 percent and even sub 35 percent I didn't hear Airbus see that as being their problem anymore. Um, and that was all in this culture uh, that Ron said was really very, very humble indeed. But he, was, he just saw that as being fat. So it was a very, very interesting uh, capital markets day. Um, and as you say, the fact that for the first 40 minutes of, the, uh, of his speech, no talk about financial metrics, but actually about what makes Airbus tick and what should make Airbus tick, um, that, was, that was an eye-opener of itself. Uh, it, 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 it certainly was uh, an astute of you to point that out. Uh, Richard, what, what did you take away uh, from uh, the, the coverage of the, of the event? And uh, if you can take us to the Xiaomen uh, decision uh, and what do you think um, that means? Because that's one of those kind of dramatic inflection points that ties in right to the uh, entire decoupling narrative, right? Boeing's, Boeing's worst nightmare, even if it may strategically be necessary. Yeah, that's right. And I think that I'll start with the Shemin thing first. You know, I think there's two ways of reading it. One, it was uh, pretty much what uh, Ron and Sash said. Basically, it was clear proof that the 320neo is is doing better. And that's very bad news for Boeing, but it's something they can do something about, right? Just launch a damn new plane. We've been saying it how many years now. Need a new mid-market single aisle that 
outcompetes and outflanks the 321neo. This is just further proof of that. Now, the other interpretation is that, look, there's a two-pronged ordering process for Chinese airlines. Um, one is the airline itself specifying stuff, and then there's CAAC with party approval, et cetera, signing off on those orders. And an airline knows that it, it has to not fall afoul. Nothing happens by accident. Therefore, they decide to specify things not just for technical requirements and financial and business reasons, but also because that they, they know they need to get the party's approval, the, the PRC's approval. Um, it's also possible that it's that. <laughs> and that it's very clear that basically the party approves right now of doing deals with Airbus and does not approve of deals involving Boeing. And obviously, Dave Calhoun has even mooted to that, saying that geopolitics do not favor their market standing. And further evidence this week, there were meetings between Boeing and the regulators in, in China about training requirements. It was pretty darn slow rolled, the whole, well, moving forward, getting the max back in the air over the coming indefinite time period. You know, remember, of course, they're the last only real major market of any sort out there that hasn't recertified it. They're clearly moving very slowly and sending political messages all the time. Unlike the product lineup issue, if Xiamen did it for political reasons, there is very little that Boeing can do aside from hoping that there's some kind of, well, maybe that the Europeans fall afoul of China or Maybe that somehow magically there's a trade deal and some kind of a rapprochement between the U.S. and China. Otherwise, it's just it just falls under the heading of necessary losses. So either way, not good news. Uh, watch from afar the uh, capital markets day from uh, you know for at, at Toulouse, and it was it was very interesting. I also came away with the two twenty five hundred suddenly be not being acknowledged as a thing. You know, Airbus of course not wanting to cannibalize the three twenty neo which the 220-500 would step right over. It wouldn't extinct it, but it would get rid of a lot of it. Clearly, they want to give themselves a good solid, say, five-year shot at building down that backlog, making some money, and then introducing the Dash 500 for service entry probably around the end of the decade or something like that. Uh, one big question, though, the 22500 should be a great plane. Uh, big question about the engine. Given the tension this week between Airbus and, of course, uh, Raytheon CEO Greg Hayes, this would be totally dependent. They would in increase their reliance on Raytheon making and Pratt and Whitney in making rate because, of course, the old C series is 100%. So, right. could there be a chance for PE to get in there? Um, possibly, possibly not. I don't know how the contract's written. I don't know whether their appetite is for a two-on-a-wing solution to a, a variant, or maybe they're just going to say, all right, all is, you know, all is forgiven. We really like you. We like your engine. Let's just move together on the Dash 500 with either a new variant of the pure power or something related very closely to what's on the, you know, the current Dash 220 220-300. That's going to be really interesting to watch. Either way, clearly that plane is starting to happen and will happen. Um, Sash, uh, you've uh, got your hand up and then I want to quickly go and discuss uh, the fine uh, and what we uh, think uh, it means. But go ahead. Yeah, um, look, I, I just um, following up on what Richard's saying about uh, the, the 22500 and cannibalizing the A320 Neo family. The A320 Neo family um, is becoming very apparent. Historically, Airbus was always worried that the 
A220 in its 100 and 200 variants, the shorter fuselage variants, cannibalized the A319 Neo. Well, the A319 Neo is pretty much dead. It's becoming very apparent that actually Airbus ter doesn't terribly care about the A320 Neo either, which was historically the, the baseline variant in the family. And as the whole of A320 production moves up towards A321s, it says a bit of cannibalization of the A220 as well. I don't think they'll. I don't think they would um, have any, you know, shed any tears about that. I think you know, Airbus production, which is A321 Neos and A220 500s, that's potentially a very, very profitable um, uh, outcome for Airbus. And if you lose lose a couple of legacy uh, models in the middle, that's what happens in uh, in life. Um, so you know th th that was really my 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 takeaway. Just on the on the pure power, the, the gear turbofan and Pratt Whitney. I wonder actually whether Airbus is talking about the two thousand five hundred now at, to get some leverage with uh, Pratt and Whitney and more broadly with uh, Raytheon Technologies on pricing because they commented on uh, the pricing of of parts, particularly from Raytheon Technologies, on the. A220 as being one of the things that stopped them from getting the, the break even down. I wonder if they're now saying, give us a better price on the gear turbofan and indeed all those Collins avionics and uh, you'll get exclusivity on the 22500. Uh, it uh, certainly, uh, certainly uh, is interesting. Let's go uh, really briefly uh, to the fine situation. Um, many very, very good companies end up playing uh, fines um, Airbus has done its turn uh, in uh, the barrel. Uh, BAE Systems had an extraordinary uh, penalty that it had to pay to the U.S. Uh, government. This is the latest in a series. We covered very closely what happened uh, in the wake of the two crashes and, and the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, concluding that uh, the, the company uh, and its management team and its former chief executive uh, had... Um, had violated federal uh, regulations and laws. Uh, Richard, just really quickly, you know, sort of what does this mean, Sash? What does it mean? And we do have to talk. Uh, there was a lot of news flow from the Air Force Association show, and I want to be sure that we get uh, to all of that. And, and a lot of that is going to focus on, on on Richard doing yeoman duty now on it. But uh, take it away really quickly. And then, Sash, want to get your view. Go ahead. You know, I don't think it was uh, terribly meaningful. The optics, of course, aren't great. Uh, the fines, but financially, of course, didn't really move the needle in what's uh, already not a great situation. Um, with uh, you know, 45 billion in net debt, what's another 200 million? Um, let's uh, shift gears. Uh, Sash, we're going to end with your war uh, take, but uh, really quickly, Sash, you're going to get two minutes to talk about uh, the war and, and where we are in the wake of Vladimir Putin's uh, um, you know, mobilization drive, nuclear threats, uh, what have you. Uh, and uh, the introduction of obviously Iranian drones, which we've discussed on this program and other uh, one, uh, of our programs. Uh, Richard, there was next generation air dominance news. There was uh, collaborative uh, combat aircraft news, B-21 news, obviously the 390 that we talked a little bit about and, and whether or not it can make progress in the market. Certainly Lockheed Martin sees, uh, you know, legs in its franchise. On the other hand, there are other folks who are looking at this and saying, just like everybody else in the market, if I can get the same job done by two engines instead of four engines, that may be advantageous for me. Um, you know, walk, walk us through what you saw as the major Air Force Association storylines from your perspective. 
Yeah, I'll start slightly afar from the Air Force Association with that KC-390 development. I thought it was intriguing, uh, as you say, you know, obviously, Embraer getting together with a partner in the absence of Boeing's partnership. But it really, to me, comes down to the U.S. Air Force because the MC and uh, KC-130J is great for helicopters. Obviously, the Marines and SOCOM use large numbers of them uh, and will continue to do so. But there is the small matter of the Air Force. And in the Pacific, one thing that's becoming very clear is that the Chinese threat is increasingly targeting enabler planes, be it tankers or AWACS or whatever else. And that means, of course, the Air Force needs some kind of answer to that. The idea of just deploying large numbers of KC-46s and KC-135s might not be tenable or survivable or, you know, most practical. So perhaps this is one possibility to have an adjunct fleet of smaller agile tankers, as they've been branded, you know, for island operations, but with still jet speeds that are suitable for Air Force planes. So I thought it was an interesting development. But by, by the um, way, um, let me let me just interject that what's interesting about this is the Skywarden um, one in part because of the avionics and, uh, package that L3 Harris. Uh, developed for a tail dragging right agricultural airplane. So even though that's what special operators wanted, what you know there was this sense that what was L three was bringing to it was a dif- differentiator. So if you can bring some of those smart tanker avionics that L three can make without sell- trying to sell any airplanes for them at all, and then pair that with what is a very very promising and very capable airplane, right? You could have a pretty interesting combination. Is your point? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, and it's certainly innovative. And uh, I, I think this is less about the international market and perhaps more about the U.S. market. And that's going to be interesting to watch. Um, all of my impressions of the Air Force Association, Air, Air and Space Force Association now, uh, came down to, of course, uh, you know, what Catholics at the Pentagon calls the pacing threat, China. And uh, so much of it came down to NGAD, collaborative combat aircraft, B-21, a great deal of confidence that they have a roadmap looking forward. Again, in contrast, I think, to the Navy, which might not have the uh, clearest West Pacific operations or East Asia operations, however you want to call it, uh, roadmap moving forward, um, you know, for anti-access area denial and whatever else. Um, It was interesting to hear them talk about the six EMD B-21s, which will apparently be revealed in a big reveal in December. That's going to be fascinating. Um, you know, apparently you know, they're, they're production representative, which means they continue to get this program right. And that's certainly an important development. You know, if anything, um, you could see even more positive news flow, the way things are being executed upon over there. And that could have read through towards the NGAD competition and whatever else. Um, very little on F-35 re-engineering. That was sort of interesting. Uh, it's becoming pretty clear that even though there's a great deal of appeal to a new engine, there's still that conundrum of finding the cash to develop it that, that would take away from about 100 F-35s. So that was an issue. Um, um, overall, uh, a very confident show. Um, I, I was, uh, was going to say on that front, though, if you listen to what so many Air Force leaders were talking about, the importance of greater range, uh, greater power, running out of power. And I would uh, check out our interview with Greg Ulmer, uh, where he discusses uh, some some of the ch- uh, of the challenges and sort of the sense that the Air Force was going to find the money in order to be able to do this, recognizing uh, that, uh, you know, it, it just everything seemed to be pointing uh, closer to that direction than doing nothing, right? I mean, if you've developed this engine and it is uh, 
um, and its claims do prove it out. Do you spend the money on just upgrading the engine that you have, or do you go to a new architecture that actually gives you more growth space? And over the course of the week, there was this sense that we've got to do uh, something uh, ultimately uh, on that, uh, which which was which was certainly uh, uh, interesting. Um, yeah, I just thought it was noteworthy that the focus seemed to be on NGAD and using that very new engine architecture as very promising and, and really the thrust of, yes, you're absolutely right. Can't rule out putting it in the F-35, but it just seemed so much of the focus was shifting to NGAD. Uh, in, in, indeed, and what this broader uh, combat uh, aviation and long-range strike architecture looks like. And uh, I should point out, right, the Air Force also announced uh, what they're going to do in order to get their part of the, their joint all-domain command and control system. Uh, right. Uh, Sash, we've got two minutes. Give us your war take, um, you know, sort of where we are, where we're going, and whether, you know, Vladimir Putin's sweeping pronouncements uh, move the needle and whether changes in government across Europe are going to reduce support for it, right? I mean, uh, the fascists, uh, they call them neo-fascists, may be back and will be back in power uh, in Italy. Um, and, and some in that coalition are, you know, have been have posed in front of the Kremlin with Vladimir Putin t-shirts on. Yeah, I'm going to have a very quick word about the KC-390 and putting a boom on it uh, and say, I think this is a dreadful idea. I've worked on air-to-air refueling tankers. Uh, one of the tankers that I worked on, tanker aircraft that I worked on, uh, was the C-130, where instead of putting a boom out the back, we put a, a hose and drogue out the back. You have to run it effectively, either through the rear ramp or totally redesign the rear ramp and, and seal the damn thing up. It was ugly as hell. It utterly destroyed the ability of that aircraft to act as a, uh, a freight unit, a cargo aircraft of any sh- sort at all. Um, and uh, as soon as we got proper tankers with um, wingtip pods rather and uh, and then tristyles with uh, proper uh, belly capability. We got rid of those aircraft, the UK straight away. It's a horrible, horrible upgrade. Uh, and I think this KC-390 is a wholly unsuitable aircraft we're doing that with. You know, if you want agile tankers, there's a ton of civil aircraft you can convert at equal cost and you're not losing freighter capability. Um, I'm happy to talk about that some other show. So how goes the war? Um, uh, Vladimir Putin um, announced sweeping, or he, in his view, sweeping mo- mobilization um, in uh, Russia. Uh, supposedly, 300,000 reservists are being called back to the colors. Um, there are all sorts of legal issues about how they call them up and, and so forth. What's the bottom line? Bottom line is Russia hasn't actually practiced a mobilization um, in probably 15 years, maybe even 20 years. Russia used to be an army that was entirely focused on massive mobilization doesn't do that anymore i've actually done that as 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 a reservist in the british army in the past it's very very difficult and that was just to call people up for exercise uh, where they weren't actually going to take a risk with uh, their own lives if you look at the um uh, speed with which flights out of russia filled up um with uh, young men trying to dodge the draft that tells you how keen it's going to be i think if they get a hundred thousand it would be a miracle if they could get a, if they could train them up this side of next year, that would be a second miracle. You don't tend to get two miracles like that in a row. Um, more worrying is that he's starting to rattle the, the nuclear saber again. Um, and clearly this shows the pressure that Ukraine is putting Russia under and that they perceive uh, arms supplies from the West to Ukraine. Uh, the, you know, the degree to which that's actually working. Um, Yes, it's worrying. And the fact that they're doing a a series of referendums to try to 
claim parts of the Donbass as Russian and hence then they can retaliate supposedly risk-free with nuclear weapons just adds to that. My view is this is all tipping um, because there's been a very robust response by the US and by Europe about this particular threat. I actually think this is tipping uh, towards um, uh, NATO offering um, membership to the Ukraine because once Ukraine is part of NATO it's under the NATO nuclear umbrella and I think this could be very very misguided by Putin indeed. I don't think particularly given the very welcome comments by President Biden I think the idea that Russia can go around using nuclear weapons just because their tactical doctrine says so, I think that is becoming, uh, you know, of increasing credibility. So, sorry, decreased credibility. Um, and in, in about a minute, um, Her Majesty's funeral was an extraordinary display by the British military, uh, proving once again, uh, Sash, that uh, some of the world's and history's greatest uniforms uh, were both generated and continued to be worn by the British armed forces, uh, all of whom, by the way, are real soldiers. For anybody who thinks that these are folks, you know, sort of play acting at soldiery, uh, they need to have their head examined. Statements yes. by the trust, trust government regarding uh, defense and how actually this um, remarkably dignified ceremony, what did that mean for the sort of the esprit de corps, the sense of self of the British military? Because if I was anybody wearing the British uniform, I'd be pretty proud of it after. I, I, look, I think the, the, the British military has done a, a, a fantastic job. I'm not surprised. Uh, and you know, this has been long planned and long rehearsed, but they still done a fantastic job. Just one little vignette for um, our, our listeners. The guardsmen who carried the coffin of Her Majesty were called back from operational service in Iraq. So they were literally pulled out of the field, you know, measured up for, for height to make sure they're all the right height, put on a plane, come back here, get on their, their uniforms uh, and start practicing for drill in a period of days rather than anything else. Uh, and that, of you know, if nothing else, that was absolutely astonishing. Where are we now? Let's, let's, let's switch to policies and budgets. Um, Prime Minister Liz Truss has said there's going to be a defence review because clearly the assumptions of the previous defence review, the integrated review, as it was called, um, back pre-pandemic about how the world would be a relatively happy place or at least, you know, the imminent threat from Russia was not something we worried about. That's been proved to be absolute baloney. Um, this will take 18 months plus. I think we've got, we're going to have a lot of shows where we talk about this. But tie that into the comments um, and this is becoming a political commitment, and it's going to be echoed by the Labour Party, that defence spending will rise to, you know, to 3% of GDP by the end of the decade. So it's not going to be fast. Um, you know, the, uh, the, not just the mood music, but the entire trajectory of defence spending has changed uh, in the UK as a consequence of Ukraine. Uh, and very hard to, you know, to, to put the genie back in the bottle again. Um, 2% has, has gone from being a ceiling to being a very, very low floor. Uh, and we should uh, point out to our audience that we will spend two days aboard HMS Queen Elizabeth uh, next week for the Atlantic Future Forum, and certainly we'll have uh, an opportunity to have some of these uh, great um, conversations. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, always uh, a pleasure having you on. I hope you guys have a great day, uh, great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks very much indeed, Bob. It's been a pleasure. As always, yeah, really enjoyed this, Vago. Have a uh, have a fascinating time on the uh, on the QE. His Majesty's ship, uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, and it, it is uh, an extraordinary ship, um, and I think that it is poignant uh, that it was Prince of Wales who was supposed to come, uh, who's, who, that was supposed to visit. Sadly, had a mechanical failure, and the Royal Navy showed how quickly it can flex 
uh, and uh, replaced uh, Prince of Wales in the lineup. And I think it'll be even more poignant to have His Majesty's ship Queen Elizabeth uh, in New York Harbor. Guys, thanks very much. Excellent co correction. I'll be sure not to make that same mistake again. 